Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship at tkex.org. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, please leave us a rating and subscribe so we can continue delivering high quality content. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Swartz. He is the owner of Sydney Exercise Physiology, good friend and colleague of mine, recently completed the Knowledge Exchange courses as well in Sydney. Really keen to dive into his story, his journey through navigating the, the depths of some rabbit holes and, and getting out in a much, much clearer uh, idea of, of evidence-based practice. And he's conquered a lot of challenges. So I think it'd be really valuable to hear his personal insights in the trenches in the clinical world. So Andrew, Andy, thank you so much for making the time, mate. Thank you for having me. Amazing. The, and I'm sure you've heard this question in our podcast before, the famous one. What is your story? What is a story? I, I should have actually prepared something, I suppose, considering I knew that was going to come. Um, my story, I, I'm a very, very sporty child. Knew that I wanted to do something to do with that uh, for my professional life. And physio was always something that interested me. Uh, some distractions of playing too much sport and not doing enough study at school, perhaps got in the way and I had, I didn't, as it turned out, have the, get the marks to get into physio and I had no idea what to do with myself. And my mum, believe it or not, found sports science was a, was a, a course that was offered at the University of New South Wales. I'd never heard of it. Um, and she did some research because I was overseas and sounded pretty cool. Uh, someone who was so into sport and exercise who hadn't heard of this course, I couldn't imagine that professionally anyone had either. So I, this was in 1993. So it was a long time ago, very, very early on in the industry. I think the, the governing body had just been formed. Uh, it, so it's very interesting because I had no idea what to expect. And it was a lot of lab work, which was fantastic. Um, you've seen all these things on TV with athletes having all sorts of electrodes on them and, and masks and things. And we would, and all of a sudden I was doing that and it was fantastic. Um, finishing uni, I then thought, all right, well, what am, what am I going to do with this? Because people didn't know what an exercise physiologist was at the time, but I still had that real interest in rehabilitation from like wanting to do physio. So I thought, well, that's a pretty practical application of it. I had done an internship at the Institute of Sport in Canberra in the labs, but again, not really a great demand for that sort of stuff in the real world. Um, but people get injured all the time. And I thought that's, that's something that I wanted to, wanted to do. Um, using movement and exercise, you've got to strengthen yourself after an injury, I thought. Well, right, that's where I, that's where I've got to go with. And we didn't do too much of that, actually, in the uni degree back then, finishing in 96. There was a lot of very general exercise stuff, then working a bit with special populations, but there didn't seem to be too much in the way of musculoskeletal rehab. We had to maybe make it up as we went along. A lot of physiology, a lot of lab-based stuff, uh, VO2 max, all those sorts of things, thresholds. Um, so I thought from there on, I then needed to pave the way for myself. I needed to find courses to do 
um, to get a bit deeper into things. Um, I did that while also finding some work in the workers' comp space, which was a great place to start. Um, and just keeping on just digging and digging and digging, uh, one of the doctors who worked out of the clinic where I was doing this work with the physios in this workers' comp rehab uh, then moved into a different clinic closer to where I lived. So, well, can I still keep referring people to you because you seem to be helping my patients a lot? I said, sure, why not? And that's sort of how I started to get into private practice a bit, just having the confidence that, well, actually maybe someone does think I know what I'm doing. And it was a, quite a, a longish road because, again, people didn't know generally. Doctors didn't know what exercise physiologists were. My friends didn't know. My mum knew because she researched it and I was lucky, <laughs> I was lucky that my family knew. Um, so then I just... I suppose I just kept on trying to learn and learn and learn and learn and get more detail into, I suppose, everything related to, to movement. Um, and uh, it was through that that you, you find that your, um, the, I suppose you start to mould yourself into a way that you like to work and it was very much clinically based where I was trying to break down movements and try and find what wasn't going right, that this person might be experiencing this thing and that's where I decided to um, really concentrate all of my attention trying to study that, do as many courses as I could on that side of things just to break down and become, uh, in inverted commas, an expert in, in movements and and yeah, I, I can teach you how to squat properly. I can teach you how to deadlift properly. Um, I can teach you how to push and pull, and twist and all of those base movements. And that's where it all starts. And um, I, I, I think I did well because I kept getting referrals and people seemed to be getting better. But then this would have been five, six, seven years ago, a, a friend of mine who uh, who's a physio overseas just said to me, got to look at this thing called Explain Pain, which Laura Mimosley and David Butler are doing. It's really quite interesting. So I thought, fair enough. Went to their course uh, and it just changed everything. But what if I, it, was, it, was, it was that simple, just uh, what, what, am I, what, what am I doing? I've been concentrating on the wrong things. And I think that was the day I said, all right, I've got to change my approach. So after spending years and years and years doing a certain thing, I then said, I think I can help people more if I go further down this track. And then did uh, a lot of reading and started doing some courses on that type of thing, on the pain science, the modern pain science, the biopsychosocial stuff. Uh, but the big moment for me was going to the Explain Pain conference in Melbourne a few years ago and seeing Peter O'Sullivan. And I, I went home after the first day. He did a, a, he did an assessment on a on a on a client who came in, which was very brave of, of him in front of a thousand judgmental physios and exercise physiologists. And he did an assessment, and it was like watching Yoda. It was it was amazing. And I I left that day saying I I've, I've 
all right, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You've either got to do it or, or not. And that was the day I said, all right, I really need to, really need to move on. So found as much as I, I can still listen, still read, knowledge exchange courses with you guys and, and just trying to get as much information as I can because I feel that it, is, it just makes too much sense. And, and especially being, as most people have been on one side or the other, I look back at the other stuff that I used to do. And again, I think I helped people, but I think I can help them more long-term doing this, not needing to chase other people, particularly in the rehab space. Um, just if you're back sore, you don't need to run to someone to get them to fix you. Hopefully we've, we've been through enough that you know it's, it's not serious. It'll go and you'll be fine. Amazing. What a journey. So from 96, you graduated. I imagine ESSA wasn't even a thing. It was like AE. It was called ACE then, Austra uh, the Australian Association for Exercise and Sports Science. Yeah, wow. Just when you thought that physiologists had too many syllables, then you have that as a governing exactly. body. So, so what a journey. So thank you to your, thanks to your mum as well for getting you in the, in the field. Yes. From the start well, it was, the get -go. It was physio, physio and, then, and then economics. What? <laughs> It's not really the best, the best second choice, is it? So what are you doing? Maybe not yet. And you got yeah. the, um, the, the movement expert, which was kind of like your, your, your kind of, you tied to it, that, that identity as the person that could break down the, the movement patterns to make sure that people are doing it correctly. I, that's, that's, what, that's what I was looking for. That's what, that's what I felt I needed to be um, in order to help people as best I could. And the funny thing is you, you helped a lot of people. So how was that kind of journey? Cause I imagine, and we, we get it all the time where we kind of, we're doing something, we get results, we see results, and then we attribute the results to our method or our intervention or our correction, movement correction. So how was that kind of dissonance? How did you navigate that when, when you were hit with explained pain? I, I, it was interesting because explain pain, I think it, it showed me that uh, I think it was almost like it, it, you just give them anything and they might get better. But the main thing that, that I got from it was communication is the most important thing. So the most important skill is not anything clinical, if you will. It's not about breaking down a movement. It's about listening to the person. You're treating a person, not an injury. Uh, and that was the, the big takeaway. And you know that, all right, well, this, this person's got some sort of flexion dysfunction. All right, that's what I need to look at. So they're also petrified. Maybe you should, look, they've had pain for so long. Maybe we need to look at something else now, not just how they're moving. Like the, why are they scared of doing it and breaking that sort of stuff down? And, and I realised that the skills that I had weren't the ones that would help them the most. And just listening, they need to trust me to help them if they can in fact be helped. If they don't think that you're gonna help them, we know, we know now that, that they won't improve because it still becomes a stressful situation for them. So, I don't know if I've answered your question, but that's how I came out of that, just thinking that these, 
these skills that I had weren't the ones that I needed to best help people. You helped people for perhaps other reasons. The, yeah, it the was. Trust it, and... Yes. And, and, and I, I do like to think that, that building rapport, even back then, um, I understood that people generally don't see someone like myself because they want to. They feel they've seen someone like me because they have to. So um, all, already I've got to, I've got to, I don't want to, I don't want to say win them over, but I need to win them over. I need to gain their trust. And whether that's through friendship and, and most people have those clients that are almost become friends rather than, rather than clients. And if someone can trust you that much, then I think you're more likely to, to make a difference. And, and I, I think that I, I realised that th that might have been why, why these people might have been improving as they had been, more so than because I could teach them to, to hinge at the hip and maintain some sort of neutral spine while they're doing anything. So hindsight's a fantastic thing, um, but that's when I, I, I realised all of those things were even more important. Amazing. So you, you would otherwise have been stuck into a different kind of rabbit hole with being, with analysing the movement. But I imagine that kind of the, the knowledge that you gained, the observation skills that you could gain, and, and then your realisation of actually my communication skills, all my, I've already got a lot of the tools in my toolbox. I just need to use it a bit differently. So you, it wasn't necessarily you, you pushed it away and you dismissed all your years of, of practice because you knew you got results. You just kind of repackaged it in a different way and you saw what was actually most valuable through Explain Pain and through the other courses that you did later on. Yes, yeah. So I, I don't think anyone just throws away everything they learn. Um, it's, it's just learning to use it in a, in a new way, um, particularly how you communicate those movements. Um, you know, I, I long ago tried to do away with technical information because talking, talking in language that you and I can understand to each other, if I'm telling someone to externally rotate this and that, they don't, they don't care. You just want to reach forward and do that. Let's do that. So I, I think that was something that I, I'd sort of worked out long ago. Um, and trying to bring that into the movements that I wanted to create. So that communication, I think, was, yeah, very important. So, so that little, one little change in terms of what you were doing then grew into more of your practice changing and evolving over time. So it wasn't like a all or nothing all at once. Yes. Yeah, seemed to. At, at, at the Explain Pain course in, in particular, David Butler was talking about that. And there was one thing that he said, um, he talked about just words that sound scary, you know, make, make for scary reactions. And I think however many years ago that course was, I haven't asked a client once, how's your back or how's your neck or how's your shoulder? So that was something which, which, which really stuck, stuck with me. Just, I, I, again, it was that long ago that I can't remember exactly what it was that he said, but he was, he, his, he was doing a lot of the communication stuff. And just the power of what we say to someone is, is huge. And, and then also looking at movement. And if you give too much information, it just becomes so stressful. 
Like you hear someone explaining how to move and it's, oh my God, that's, that was probably what I was doing to people. And no wonder they're scared to pick something up if there's so many instructions they've got to follow. Well, it's, I can still try and teach a particular movement, but give instructions in a way that makes it less threatening. Amazing. That's, so it's a communication gem for, for all the listeners out there that, that it's important to reflect on the meaning behind our words. And if we can simplify something, simplify our cue, so much easier for, for people to take away. Leave the consult feeling more safe in their body and with their body. And, and I really like the, 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 the question, how are you versus how, are, how is your body part? Because then where's the focus for someone, right? Exactly. But I also found it reminds them, how's your back? Actually, yeah, a little, little stiff today. Now, you, now that you mention it, you have to remind them that they're seeing you because they had a problem. That's it. And the, the, the kind of seeing Peter O'Sullivan in action and, and taking the courses afterwards, I imagine it was a, a way for you to see more examples of it in action. So that kind of vicarious experience can help with us when we see things in action, we can see some examples and we can then apply it into our practice. Was that kind of some of the value that you took from the more recent courses that you've taken? De definitely. I think seeing at one of the courses with you guys, it was, I think it was, Daniel, I think it was one of your clients. Um, was a shoulder, I think it was at the yes. shoulder. Yes. And I think Luke was trying to, to assess him. And it didn't go as well as he had hoped, <laughs> which is fantastic in a learning environment because it, they don't always. We, we, we don't have magic wands, unfortunately. I mean, we, we do our best, but sometimes people just don't want to play. And it was actually the, so they say you don't, you don't learn by getting things right. You learn by getting things wrong. That's why they call it practice. Um, but I, I, all of these examples with Luke trying to do stuff and then seeing things online, some of Peter O'Sullivan's videos where he's assessing people that just help incredibly just to, yeah, just, just to solidify what, what you think w would help. Um, and then you just see it helping and it, it, it's, definitely something which was which was great to see and it's a great point that we learn more from our mistakes than we do perhaps from our successes because mistakes bring about the change and the and we reflect on what we could have improved on so i imagine you've also had your ups and downs when it comes to applying these concepts in your practice i know i definitely have made plenty of mistakes so keen to hear uh your journey with with the the practice the application and, and any kind of examples I think, I think the main thing that, and I still do it, and I have such a tough time with it still, is um, uh, allowing people to come to the realisation they, themselves. So it's that idea of um, talk less, listen more, and ask, ask, don't tell, like let them come to that point. And, and I still do it, and I pick myself up on it after I see a new client where you, you, you tell them what they need. So no, no, what you need to do is this. And then you finish and oh, did it again. And you, you, know it, you know it when you've done it, but you know, the first thing you 
first thing you've got to do if you find yourself in the bottom of a hole is stop digging. <laughs> and then you've got to, all right, I've, I've put myself here. How can I now, how can I now get out of it? And then it's just an idea of starting again almost and, and trying to come down a different path. They've heard things, they've heard certain things for so long that it's, it's hard to change it sometimes in just one, one conversation. But resisting that urge to just say, all right, here's what you need. It's, it's, it's hard. And, and that reflection afterwards is, is okay, what, could I have done something a little bit differently? Could I have taken them down a different path with a different line of questioning? Um, was I getting there and I just went too quick? It's, and yeah, just having that reflecting after each, each session like that can, can help, I think, just to, to hone your skills that little bit more. But it comes with time. It comes with time. Like, did the, um, the motivational interviewing, and, and that's, what, that's what she was saying. That it's, just, it's, 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 not, it's not like learning maths where you, you, you learn the formula straight away. This is it's such a complex skill, and it takes a lot of time to master. If, if in fact, you ever do master it. I mean, we, I wish I could be like Peter O'Sullivan was that day, but that, I don't know how long he's been doing it. Longer than I've been doing it, I'll give you the tip. But so I think being honest with ourselves as well in that, in that assessment of how we did is, is important too. It's a, about taking the time, first and foremost, to look back on what happened, what went well, what you could have improved on. So I imagine you kind of, you dedicate that time you're not just kind of going in and out kind of nine to five job clock out. That's it. No, um, no time for that self-reflection. So you must be scheduling some kind of uh, effort with that. And also with your, your courses outside of work. So you dedicate that time. I try to, um, I, I try to, as you, as you're writing down your notes afterwards and during it's, it's, I think it's an important thing just to, to do exactly that stuff. It doesn't have to be long. It's not like it needs to be hours and hours and hours, just a few minutes even as you're finalizing your notes. I think you tend to, I tend to, I don't wanna say you, I don't wanna put everyone in the same boat, but, but I, I tend to, I tend to focus more, I think it's human nature. We focus more on our failures than we do on our successes. And the, the people that I'm not helping as much I, I, I like to think, what, am, what have I done wrong? What, have I, what could I do better? Where it was, a doctor once told me, you know what, there's, I, I called, it was this doctor I mentioned before who started referring to me back in the day. I was having a lot of problems with someone back then. I called him up and said, I'm having problems. He said, you know what, I, you can't help this person. It's not you, don't worry about it. And to, to hear it from someone like that, he was a, Doctor of Rehabilitation Medicine as well. He just said, uh, he just, I just thought maybe he could do something. Don't beat yourself up over it. It's not you. And you hear people, just, you can't help everyone, but they're the ones that you feel like you want to help the most because it's more of a challenge to, all right, what, what can I do differently? And they're the people that I tend to spend more time reflecting on myself than the people that just go brilliantly because you think, well, must have done. And it could have been the same coincidence for one to not do well that the other one did do well, but you just don't reflect on that as much. Maybe that's 
maybe we should just be doing all of them, but I unfortunately just tend to focus on the, the, the ones that don't go as well. I think that's a good way of practicing because there's a lot of people that perhaps we don't need as much effort on our part or the, as much coaching. They're already kind of bought in to the process. They just needed one little nudge towards one direction and then bang. They're doing yeah, some people. Some people just get it, don't they? So, oh, that, of course, that makes sense. Yeah, that's it. others, so others not so more, much. Spending more time on the ones that perhaps don't, and using our yeah. skills and our guidance and upskilling there, I think that's that's great. Because in the end, we want everyone to be on that boat, so they're self-managing from the start. And the ones that aren't yeah. self-managing, that's where we spend most of our time and energy. And that's where, funnily enough, we get the writing reflex, where we're like, we just want to spoon feed them, tell them the answers, because we're so passionate about it i think it takes a lot of skill as well um to to recognize acknowledge that we want to say that and then say something different and then see if we can show them rather than tell them all the answers it's much easier that way isn't it, it saves our time, right? <laughs> oh saves time saves effort saves frustration just do this you'll get better but you know that's again when when we want them to change rather than when they want them to change and and, and that's what we're striving for Great, because otherwise we get that kind of pressure in ourselves to have to deliver that fix, we have to fix their belief or fix their, their movement or fix their exercise prescription, fix their plan, fix their lifestyle for them. Yep, Burnout. doesn't work. No. <laughs> no, thank you. Yep. And so you had some motivational interviewing training yourself? Yes, yes. Um, again, after seeing seeing Peter and then um, again, the, the, the courses with, with Brendan and Luke and, and then just seeing them question people in certain ways. It's, it's, I thought that's again, the, the, the skill of communication is just so much more important than any technical or clinical skill, although I suppose it can be considered a clinical skill, but a technical movement based skill that that's, that was something that I needed to prioritize. So did a course, uh, not too long ago and uh, haven't been able to practice as much as I want after the, the lockdowns and what have you, but um, it's still something that, that I, I feel I need to get better at always. Just that's undoubtedly. Yep. Undoubtedly. Went, to, went to a course myself with Tara McGregor. If that, yep. was, that rings a bell. Was that similar? Yes. To, yes. So that was we'll, her. Have her, we'll have her on our, our podcast soon. And I'm pretty sure there was a quote there. Bill Miller said that even 20, 30 plus years and being the creator of motivational interviewing, he still feels that writing reflex. And it's a kind of a, an urge to tell people what to do. And that's so hard, the founder, right? So hard, so hard to, to, to stop yourself sometimes. And, uh, you just, and then you do it and it's, oh, you were doing so well. <laughs> you had to jump in, didn't you? It's, uh, it's ingrained in us, I feel, from uni. Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to move on to an example, perhaps, of uh, a client or a situation, a case that you've come across where you've kind of applied some of the, the concepts and maybe if you had rewinded the clock seven years prior, you would have had a completely different approach. So what's, what's kind of an example? of? It was... I, I, one jumps to mind because I, I was working with him. This was earlier in the year. So very young, fit guy, mid-20s builder who had back surgery. And he was 
referred to me to try and like he needed to take those next steps to get back to work. And questioned him about what he had been doing and what he had not been doing and what he would like to be doing. Uh, he wasn't surfing, but was a surfer. He wasn't working, um, but was going to the gym five, six days a week. What type of stuff were you doing? Oh, I'm just staying on the machines because I'm just, I'm scared of hurting myself. Thought, oh, here we go. Ding, ding, ding. Let's, let's try and work out what, what's going on. Was it beliefs? All those things. And one of the things that I, I sort of went down the path with him was, why did you have the surgery? Well, it's because I needed to fix something, blah, blah, blah. Was, was the surgery deemed successful by the surgeon? Yeah, he was very happy with it. So you should be able to move, shouldn't you? If all of these things are supposedly fixed. Um, again, I didn't need to discuss with him whether having the surgery or not having the surgery was appropriate, that he had had a surgery. It's all right, well, let's work from that point. I said, well, I suppose having surgery should have fixed it. So does it make sense then that you're not doing these things, but you're fixed? In inverted commas. Not really. You're not doing squats, are you? No, I'm not doing squats. All right. What do you think would happen if you did a squat for me? Probably nothing. <laughs> okay, so come do a squat for me. And he, we started off light and I think I didn't go any higher. He did a, did a squat with a 20 kilo kettlebell just from the floor. And I think that showed him that, all right, I can do stuff. And I think four weeks later, he was working again. So it wasn't hard. He did the work and he just needed that confidence to get back in the gym. And he was, he's fine. He just, he, he didn't need rehab. He needed a chat. <laughs> Perfect. That's amazing. And that is so much more valuable than seeing a coach for, you know, three times a week for six months to correct that kind of movement pattern. If, if they already have the skill to then reflect back and, oh, maybe I can change. Maybe I can go back to surfing. Maybe I can go back into my other gym activities. And it's kind of that self-exploration. We're allowing that human to go back and, and self-explore and build up their self-efficacy and confidence themselves versus tying them back to, to us all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, a similar thing with him with surfing. So what do you think would happen if you went surfing? I don't know. Do you want to try? Sure. Again, considering that the surgeon was very happy with the surgery, if your back is a little bit sore after you've surfed, what do you think's happening? I don't know. Do you think you've done something wrong? Well, no, the surgery is good, so probably not. Okay. Why don't you try it? He started surfing again. So he was back at work and he was back enjoying himself surfing. So it was. I think he sort of, what was, what, was, what was I doing? And they just need that little bit of a push he's mentioned before. That's all it was. Perfect. You asked the right questions to get him to realise it himself. Yeah. But for, further to what you were saying, how might I have dealt with that before? I would have taught him lifting techniques and how to squat properly and how to deadlift properly because when he's on the job, he's going to have to lift heavy stuff. Now it's that, that idea of... Movement optimism. Well, he's going to have to lift in so many different ways. I don't want to teach him one way to lift. Let's teach him heaps of ways to lift. 
that's, that's yep there's um i think the nuance would be if, if he didn't have the confidence to go back and do all these tasks then maybe he might have benefited from some guidance and and coaching and support through that but this this guy you oh, asked him the right case. questions and yeah yeah and there are other there are other people where you would go through just a you know some basic technique stuff just movement try and teach in inverted commas the 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 easiest way to squat or not teach instruct let them work it out for themselves how does that feel good all right let's stick with that but then we're going to try and do a few other things as well down the line but let's stick with this one for now because it feels good for you perfect and that's the language that is simple and yep. less threatening back to what david butler mentioned yeah yeah it's, it's again for someone like that that client who was very active already i mean that's that can be easier because we don't need to convince them to start moving a little bit more they want to start moving a little bit more they're just a little bit a little bit apprehensive about what to do so he was still going to the gym he was just doing stuff which he felt was a lot safer like machine-based stuff but there are a lot of people that come in that just don't don't move they don't want to move. and encouraging those people can be a little bit a little bit harder as well it's quite interesting there was a a, a, a sports doctor that I, I used to work with he said um, it's hard working with athletes because they don't want to do it unless it's hard and it's hard working with the average person because they don't want to do it if it's hard so it's finding that balance with everyone. Sometimes you've got to pull them back a bit because they're, they're just, they're, they're, they're moving so, for, so fast um, that, that their, their systems can't catch up. And then there are other people that you need to just try and urge them along a little bit. The kind of uh, avoidance scoper or endurance scoper to figuring yeah. out where they yeah. are and, and how motivated they are. What's their readiness yep. for that change? Back to MI. Exactly. Yes. Amazing. So what are then, Andy, and based on your recent courses, you've, you've come away with, with some really valuable information and you've been applying it. Uh, and I imagine there's certain situations where it's more challenging than others. So what, are, what would you say would be some of the, the biggest kind of challenges to, for, for clinicians applying biopsychosocial approach to, to clinical practice? For me, the hardest is... I think it's the fact that we tend to be in a minority and the messages seemed to get swamped by a lot of biomechanical stuff. So where I'm working, um, there's a few of us working out of the same space and there's a lot of mixed messages coming from, from other, other clinicians as well. So I'm trying to do my thing, but then over on the squat rack, you're hearing all of that technical information that I was talking about before that make sure you, you know, drive the heels and knees out and spread and elbows and flare. And this is, and, and my clients are hearing, ah, don't worry about all that stuff when I'm telling them, but then they're here. So it's like, well, hang on. Why is, why is that person being taught one thing and I'm being told another and I, the, the mis, mixed messaging. Um, Dr. Google doesn't help anything as well. So people do their research and, I think a lot of a lot of a lot of that stuff is challenging as well because people do that before they tend to come and see us. Um, there's that that preconceived idea of what should be done based on what they say, 
I don't know who they are, but they have a very big influence on the way things are done. And they can often not necessarily be correct. And I, I, I think I've found for myself that, that, that that's, that's the, biggest, the biggest barrier. Just trying to, try, trying to uh, I don't want to say correct, but trying to give another perspective on what, on what people think, but what we know of as being inaccurate. Um, the, the, you know, the, the prevalence of, of, of uh, asymptomatic people having something of clinical relevance. You know, so I'm a, I've got a back uh, L5S1 disbulge. Well, congratulations, so do 50% of people. I mean, you don't say it like that, obviously. But, but that's the information you want to get across. You, know, you want to tell someone, okay, that means you're normal. But they don't think that because they've been told by so many people that it's not. So on the one hand, it's the raising the awareness for the, the public, the layperson, to get this information out there, to market it yep. so that it becomes the norm. And then there's the, also the mixed messages that they might receive in, in a, the context of the clinic, where perhaps other clinicians aren't uh, as aware or as up-to-date with this information. So how do we kind of navigate that without, you know, um, with, with having that collaborative kind of mindset because we're all trying to help people. We're, we're, we're not purposely trying to, to make someone worse. That's quite an, an interesting skill. And I feel like perhaps some, some uh, motivational interviewing or showing and telling. So what does the client think about that mm. based on their own experiences? Otherwise we just clash with our colleagues all the time. What do, what do you think? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I now know that they, they need to come up with their own conclusion or well, we need to try and bring that out of them rather than believing what someone else has told them. So you present the information. Um, you hope that they're open to new information. Um, and then if they come to that conclusion themselves, like you said, the motivational interviewing stuff, if they come to that conclusion, they're much more likely to get success. Well said, perfectly. Yep. With, for the new grads that are listening that have been exposed to these kind of messages of evidence-based practice, a biopsychosocial approach to clinical practice and pain science. Uh, and they're perhaps uh, stuck with all these mixed messages in a similar way to some, some clients might be hearing some mixed messages in, in a clinic or gym space. New grads are perhaps getting some mixed messages from their university and from other colleagues and from their mentors and, and their friends. So how, what's kind of the first bits of advice that you would recommend for, for a new grad, just starting to learn more about evidence-based practice? I think, I think they need to experience as much as they can. It's, I'm old, Dan, you know that. Um, it's been a long time since I've been, I've been a uni, but um, I, I, think, I think you need to have an open mind. It's very important that you, stuff changes so quickly, even within one part of this. So uh, apparently, you know, some of Lorimer Mosley's stuff from when he started out, he's since said, oh, I was wrong with that. So if you only read stuff from back then, he has changed his mind on certain things, as, as has everyone. 
in this. So I, I, you can't you can't close yourself off. I think you need to be open-minded. You need to keep in touch with everything. Um, you need to experience things. And just as much as you think one thing might work, someone else might think the exact opposite is the right way. So it's it's um, it's a matter of finding out what works for you and what makes sense to you. For, for many people, the the the, the, the very clinical movement-based stuff might say, no, this is what I should be doing. That's, that's their choice. And we might disagree with that based on our experiences, but I think everyone needs to work it out for themselves. And if, if you do keep up with a lot of the research, then that becomes a lot easier because it can point it out for you in, in many ways, can't it? So that's the whole point of it. But I, I think keeping an open mind and trying to experience as much as you can would probably be the best, the best advice I, I could give. And I wish someone had told that to me. I didn't, I didn't necessarily have that or as much of that because the, the industry was so young when I started out. And I, I got lucky in a few senses with, as, as many people do, with, with meeting certain people at certain times. But I, it'd be nice just to to have a little bit more of, of almost mentorship, Dan, mentorship would, is, is great. What, what, what you're trying to do with people, I think is fantastic. I wish I had that. I think that the experience is, is undervalued. Going through it yourself and experiencing and, and seeing things in action um, and embasing our learnings off the evidence base, because we all get the evidence, we all get the information, but how do we then apply it? And do we have the, our own experiences and understandings of it and perhaps having that social network and courses such as the ones that you've attended and, and mentors in all in different areas and then on the top of that having that uh, willingness to to be humble enough to know that things might change in a few years time i think that's that's a that's a big one um that that willingness to change and to ad admit admit you're wrong really uh, I'm, not wrong, but admit that there's a different way that might be better. Um, it's, it's a common story after hearing people speak that, so I, I wish I could go back 15 years and, and help people then the, with the skills that I have now. I feel like I would have helped more people in different ways. And again, that's not to say I, I wasn't helping people because you just get people moving more, you're helping people. But just to give them that, that understanding of where they're at I wish, I wish I could go back and do that. But it doesn't mean I was a bad practitioner then. I was doing the best with what I had. And that's what I thought was, would help people. So I think that number one is everyone's doing the best that they have with what they, what they think at the, that time and knowing that that evolves over time. And it's great to hear. So definitely not calling you old, Andy. You've been in the game for, <laughs> for 20 plus years. That, and to hear your, your change and your evolution over time is so refreshing for us to, to know that you're still changing and we're all still changing. We're all on the same boat evolving over time as new information, new evidence comes in. So we're not just kind of sticking to our, our interventions and our ego as the movement experts or even the pain science experts, we're still open to new information that's coming in. Yeah, we just want to get people moving more, in, in short. 
you know, that's that, how do we do that? And, and your toolbox can be really, really big or it can be small, but it doesn't mean you have to use every tool. Um, my brother once said to me, you can, you can buy a whole book and just read one chapter if you want. You know, it's, it's, it's just take out of it every little bit that you feel is relevant. And then that, that sort of shapes you as a practitioner. Perfect. On the journey to be less and less wrong. Less, I like that. Less and less wrong. Yes. And we're all going to be wrong and we can't help everyone. And I think that's important. Definitely. Otherwise we get tied up and, and think we're, we're, we're not a good practitioner if we, if we can't fix someone. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, we judge ourselves on purely on the success of, of one or two clients. That doesn't, doesn't make sense. And there's some, some gems there, some really practical takeaways as well. It's so awesome to hear someone with, with the clinical experience that you have going through the process and, and hearing about your journey. So for, for those listeners out there that want to learn more about you or, or reach out to you or reach out to Sydney Exercise Physiology, where, where can we find you? Um, well, as, as you know, Dan, I'm not, I'm not huge into this, the social media. I do have uh, at Sydney Exphys for Instagram and Twitter, uh, sydneyxphys.com.au uh, website. Uh, probably the best ways to to get me. I I'm, I might I might check a DM someday if you explain to me what it actually is. <laughs> but 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 perhaps I can get a a young person to show me all of those things at some point. Might have to ask one of the kids. But definitely email <laughs> seems to be the the best form of contact. Yeah, through the website would be would probably be the easiest. Awesome. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate your, your time and until next time. Definitely. Thanks, Daniel. It's been my pleasure too.